This week in the Lectures in History podcast, a discussion about election polls. American University professor Joseph Campbell teaches a class on public opinion and election forecasting. He provides information on poll bashing and how polling has been framed in the media. In 2004, a commentator on the Fox News program Newswatch named Jim Pinkerton said in that program that polls are as accurate and precise as human nature, which is to say they are not accurate and they are not precise. Professor Campbell also speaks about some of the most significant polling misses in American politics, where the outcome was vastly different than predicted. Good morning, everybody. A warm welcome to everyone today. It's good to see you all. Today we're going to take up the long and fitful, uneasy relationship between the news media and election polling. We'll consider a number of specific cases today in the context of presidential elections that, for whatever reason, the polls didn't get right, the polls went wrong. And we'll also consider factors that may explain the easing of poll bashing among American journalists. Much of the content in today's lecture is drawn from my most recent book, Lost in a Gallup, Polling Failure in U.S. Presidential Elections. And here are some names that we're going to be mentioning during the next bit of time. Edward R. Murrow, he was a legendary broadcast journalist in the 50s and 60s, even the 40s, who worked for CBS News, had a lengthy and storied career for CBS News. Another name we'll hear is that of Eric Severide. He was a commentator for a long period of time for CBS News on television, CBS News Evening Report. Another name we'll encounter is Mike Royko. Royko was a prominent journalist in Chicago, a columnist who was regarded as Chicago's most witty, ornery observer, news observer. Ariana Huffington is another name that we'll encounter. She was a founder of Huffington Post, HuffPost now, and a former syndicated columnist. Haynes Johnson of the Washington Post is yet another name that we'll encounter today, as is Jimmy Breslin, a celebrated writer and columnist for newspapers in New York City. Each of these journalists was prominent in some fashion in print or broadcast media. And as we shall see, all of them were suspicious about election polling, even hostile, even vehemently hostile about election polling, All of them can be called poll bashers, vigorous, even harsh critics of election surveys. In considering poll bashing journalists, we'll touch on presidential elections of 1948, 1952, 1980, 2008, 2016, and 2020. The polls in each of those elections were off target in some fashion, in some way. And as we've discussed, polling failure doesn't always happen the same way. In any case, these cases that we'll touch on today sparked confusion, surprise, even disillusionment, and no small embarrassment for pollsters. So let's get going. Let's step back 70 years to the election of 1952. It was the first presidential election after the polling debacle of 1948. Pollsters then, in 1948, had confidently predicted the victory of Republican Thomas Dewey, then governor of New York State, in an election with Harry Truman, the incumbent president. Truman won in an upset that no pollster anticipated, no pundit anticipated, and the news media did not anticipate either. It was a shock, a shock election. So in 1952, pollsters inevitably were pretty wary. They were pretty cautious in their projections, in their estimates about how this race was going to go. In fact, they were so cautious that one humor columnist for a newspaper said, a tie would suit them fine. 
that the pollsters would be satisfied if the election turned out to be a tie. They were that cautious, that wary. That race in 1952, 70 years ago, pitted an American war hero named General Dwight Eisenhower against the governor of Illinois, Adlai Stevenson. Adlai Stevenson. The polling indicated that this race was so close that it could be won by either candidate, that it could go either way. A narrow election was anticipated by the polls, as this article about the Gallup poll suggests. Despite their equivocation, the pollsters, as they often do, set the agenda, set the narrative for the news media and others about this election in 1952. The expectation was it's going to be a tight race between Eisenhower and Stevenson. That's not how it turned out. That's not how it turned out. Eisenhower won in a landslide that no pollster anticipated. Indeed, almost no pundit anticipated the landslide. He won. Eisenhower carried the popular vote by almost 11 percentage points and received more than 440 electoral votes. It was a crushing landslide for the Republican candidate, Eisenhower. Pollsters were confused as to what happened, trying to come up with explanations in the immediate aftermath of this surprise. It seems that undecided voters were a major factor in the polling surprise of 1952, in that there was a substantial number of people responding to the polls saying that they did not know who they were going to vote for. Eisenhower, Stevenson. So that undecided vote was a difficult proposition for the pollsters in the sense that how do you allocate the undecided vote? Do you split it in half? Do you give most to one candidate or the other? Do you ignore it altogether? It's a conundrum. It was a conundrum for pollsters in 1952. Gallup, George Gallup, of the Gallup poll, decided to, to allocate the undecided voters in a way that, rep, that resembled allocation of undecided voters in the two previous presidential elections, in 1944 and 1948. In one scenario, he said, those undecided voters are going to break two to one for the Democrat, Adley Stevenson. In another scenario, he said it was going to be three to one for the Democrat, Adley Stevenson. In that latter scenario, you come up with a 50-50 tie. A 50-50 tie. Why the undecided voters may have swung to Dwight Eisenhower late in the campaign was his pledge in late October 1952 to go to Korea. Go to Korea. Then the scene of a long protracted stalemate of a war between the United States its South Korean allies and the North Koreans and the Chinese. That war had begun in 1950 and by late 1952 had settled into a stalemate. Eisenhower, a war hero from World War II, suggested that he was going to go, in fact stated openly, that he would go to Korea to seek a way to end the stalemate, end the conflict, end the bloodletting. That announcement may have been enough to tip most of the undecided voters in his direction. In any case, the undecided vote and how to allocate undecided voters was a difficult situation for the pollsters in 1952. Criticism about the outcome was withering. A newspaper in Massachusetts, the Berkshire County Eagle, said that pollsters were unable to tell a tidal wave from a photo finish. And as I wrote in my book, Lost in a Gallop, journalists took no small satisfaction in the pollsters' failure in 1952. Edward R. Murrow, Edward R. Murrow, a broadcast legend for CBS News, said in the day after the election that the people surprised the pollsters, the prophets, and many politicians. They demonstrated, the people demonstrated, he said, as they had in 1948, 
that they are mysterious and not meant to be measured by mechanical means. Doubting that polling had the ability to define what Americans really thought. And this sentiment of Edward R. Murrow resonated throughout the U.S. news media in 1952 and beyond. A newspaper in Denton, Texas, picked up on that theme and said, the outcome may be discouraging news for pollsters, but we like the independence demonstrated by the voters. The American voter, this newspaper said in its editorial, is an independent critter. It was not 1952 when poll bashing originated, but the outcome of that election intensified this sentiment, this tendency among prominent journalists. After all, the polls had misfired in back-to-back presidential elections, 1948, 1952. This lent, and there were different reasons for the poll failure in those two elections. This lent a distinct impression that polls were imprecise and unreliable. And in addition, the notion was widespread among journalists that polling was just a presumptuous pastime and posed an unwarranted intrusion in the life and the thinking of Americans and American voters. These arguments maintained that Americans were just too complex and too idiosyncratic for their views to be accurately captured by opinion polls, by survey research. So in a way, polling failure was seen perversely, perhaps, as a triumph of the individual and individual will. Critics of election polling included Murrow and others, and others. In 1964, Eric Severide, a commentator for CBS News, acknowledged in a newspaper article that he had a secret glee and relief when the polls went wrong. He said the reasons for his feelings so were obvious. We hate, he said, to have the mystery and suspense of human behavior eliminated by clinical dissection. In other words, that the polls presumed that they were able to divine what Americans thought. He thought that this was an unwarranted intrusion. Eric Severine. In time, poll bashing among journalists became more vigorous, more vehement, indeed even more hostile. Mike Royko, who was Chicago's best-known journalist, he was a columnist for the Chicago Tribune after many years as a columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times. Royko, in the mid-1980s, mounted a noisy campaign encouraging his readers to lie to pollsters should they ever be interviewed by exit pollsters. And exit polls are conducted on election day at polling places of voters as they leave, after they have cast their ballots. And they're approached by exit pollsters. This has changed in recent years, and exit pollsters do a little more than just that. They try to reach voters who have already voted in early voting. But back then, they were still being interviewed as, voters were still being interviewed as they left the polling place after having voted. So Royko is urging his readers to lie to pollsters to lie to pollsters. And he wrote this in 1984, that urging people to lie has been one of his few constructive civic endeavors. Of course, he's probably writing a bit tongue-in-cheek here. But he said the idea behind this encouragement of, of voters to lie to pollsters is to try to mess up the polling results. And, for have, and to have the announcement of the exit polls on television be projected incorrectly. Of course, all of this was somewhat naive because not even Royko and, and the reach that he had among Chicagoans back in his day in the mid-'80s 
could influence enough people who are interviewed by exit pollsters, which is only a small number of people, to mess up the exit polls. So it wasn't really going to happen that way. But nonetheless, his advice, his encouragement, his columns, his poll-bashing columns were remembered and cited years after the fact. At a national convention of APOR, which is the American Association for Public Opinion Research, it's the leading organization of survey research, the president, the then president of APOR, invoked the Royco columns and said that how can we expect the public to take our work seriously when some of our opinion leaders, like Royco, are trying to make a mockery of them. So his lying to pollsters' advice resonated and lived on 30 years later, 30 years afterwards. An even more improbable and adamant campaign was that led by Arianna Huffington, a founder of Huffington Post, formerly a syndicated columnist as well, she led what she called a campaign for a poll-free America, a poll-free America. And by that, she meant that she wanted people to take a no, a no poll pledge and to hang up on pollsters should they call asking for opinions. Or if people were not able to hang up on pollsters, she said they should lie to them. Anything, she said, to contaminate the sample and demonstrate how unreliable polls are. Lie to pollsters. The no poll pledge. Very colorfully, she described polling as having become esteemed and regarded with the same sort of reverence that ancient Romans gave to chicken entrails. Eventually, her poll bashing campaign faded away. In fact, Huffington Post in 2010 acquired a polling aggregator called pollster.com, causing a shift in her views about polling a little bit, saying at that time, polling, whether we like it or not, is a big part of how we communicate about politics. Another persistent and perhaps even more prominent poll basher was Haynes Johnson, a national correspondent for the Washington Post, Haynes Johnson. He said in an interview with C-SPAN that he wished that we could disband all polls. And let me play the, a brief clip from that interview. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. I, uh, I wish we would disband all polls. I hate the polls. I mean, we rely on them. I use them. I've cited them. I've even gone out, God help me, and done polling myself and knocked on doors and so forth. But I think we make too much of polls. I think we make too much of polls. On another occasion, he said that polls are no substitute for hard reporting for street reporting by journalists, to get out and talk to people. Haynes Johnson was both a practitioner and an advocate of what is called shoe leather journalism. Shoe leather journalism. Which essentially means getting out of the office, talking to people, doing interviews, getting a sense of trends through these qualitative measures. So intense, supposedly, that you begin to wear out the soles of your shoes. 
in shoe leather journalism, shoe leather reporting. For example, in the fall of 1980, Haynes Johnson crisscrossed the country, going to places as diverse as Boston and Youngstown, Ohio, interviewing and, and writing long, really long articles for the Washington Post that the Post called Portraits of America that discussed Americans' concerns, disillusionments, apprehensions, troubles in 1980, more than 40 years ago. In his travels, Johnson sometimes sneered at polls and pollsters, saying he disliked polls because they were unable to pick up the complexities, the complexities of people, echoing the sentiments expressed by Edward R. Murrow a generation earlier. Failed to pick up the complexities of people and their opinions. In 1980, Somewhat like 1952, the polls projected, anticipated, estimated a close race between Ronald Reagan, the Republican, and Jimmy Carter, the incumbent president. And near the end of the campaign, although he did not in his articles offer an estimate as to who was likely to win the election in 1980, Haynes Johnson was asked on a television program for his appraisal of the race. And he gave this answer. I really don't know, he said. I think All my bones tell me that Reagan is going to win. But I think somehow that Carter is going to slip through and win re-election based on his intensive interviews crisscrossing the country during the fall campaign. Carter is going to slip through. In an outcome that resembled, in some respects, 1952, the outcome of 1952, Ronald Reagan won in a near landslide He defeated Jimmy Carter by nearly 10 percentage points. An outcome that pollsters did not anticipate. Nor did Haynes Johnson. He did not dwell much on his misprediction in the aftermath of the 1980 election. Instead, he said in a news article that reporters would have been better served by relying on their own instincts, their own legwork, which he said in turn produces their own political instincts rather than the presumably scientific sample offered by pollsters. The surprise outcome of 1980 left pollsters bickering among themselves quite openly, which is quite unusual. Disputes among pollsters, election pollsters, tends to be more private, more quiet, more low-level, not so much in 1980's aftermath. They bickered about how things got so wrong. And one of the disputes was whether there was this late-in-the-campaign shift of support to Reagan from Carter or not. Some pollsters said, yep, that explains it. Others said, that's nonsense. We did not see such a shift late in the campaign. And really, it's still kind of, 42 years later, somewhat unresolved. I think the standard explanation is that, yes, there was this shift to Ronald Reagan late in the campaign, but it was a disputed analysis. It was not embraced unanimously. It inspired editorial cartoonists, too. The polling failure of 1980 led Tony Off of the Philadelphia Inquirer put together this fairly imaginative and a bit insulting editorial cartoon for the Philadelphia Inquirer. The notion that pollsters were somewhat akin to sorcerers making all kinds of a witch's brew, if you will, resonated and found expression many years later. In 2004, a commentator on the Fox News program Newswatch named Jim Pinkerton, said on that program that polls are as accurate and precise as human nature, which is to say they are not accurate and they are not precise. This practice, he said, is witchcraft. The 2004 presidential election probably represented the zenith, or if you will, the nadir, of 
poll bashing among prominent journalists. That year, Jimmy Breslin, a well-known, well-regarded, celebrated columnist, writer, playwright in New York City, took on a campaign late in the, late in the race to chastise polls, on one occasion calling them cheap, meaningless, blatant lies. And Jimmy Breslin's complaint was that pollsters were not interviewing voters with cell phones who had given up their landlines and were relying primarily on cell phones. That number was fairly small of cell phone-only voters back in 2004. It has since become overwhelming. Many people have given up their landlines for cell phone-only use. Not so much in 2004. Pollsters, he was right, did not generally call cell phone numbers. There were complications. Federal regulations seemed to impede that practice. Pollsters nowadays do call cell phones. In fact, most people's pollsters who are using the phone in any fashion for their polling are calling more cell phone numbers than they are landline numbers. In any case, this was Breslin's principal complaint. He said they're failing to pick up and failing to interview people who were probably younger and more likely to vote for the Democratic candidate in 2004, John Kerry. On election day, 2004, Breslin writes this, that I'm not even going to bother to watch the results on television. I'm going to go to bed early. Besides, he wrote with typical bluster, if I was up, so many people, upon seeing every word I said of this election coming true, would be kissing my hands and embarrassing me with outlandish praise. Jimmy Breslin, an election day column, 2004. John Kerry lost to George Bush, George W. Bush, by 2.5 percentage points. It was a close election, pivoted on the outcome of Ohio that year, which narrowly went to George Bush, amid some dispute, amid some dispute about that outcome. So why all this periodic poll bashing among journalists? What explains this tendency that we've seen in the years past. Edward R. Murrow is a legendary, was a legendary broadcast journalist in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Haynes Johnson, Mike Royko, Jimmy Breslin, all were Pulitzer Prize winners at one time in their career. They were all respected journalists. So what factors explain cross-generational poll bashing? I'll offer three, three factors. One is that polling's record of unreliability and inaccuracy made it an easy target for journalists, prominent journalists, picking on the polls, if you will, calling them out for their mistakes, their misfires, their errors. Another factor which we've seen from Murrow to Haynes Johnson is a dislike of the presumptiveness of polling. By that I mean that polling seemed to say, and does say in many respects, we can figure out what Americans are thinking, we can figure out what their preferences are. This is a procedure that can do that, that can can detect what Americans are thinking. A lot of journalists over the years, had problems with that. They resented the presumptiveness of polling. And also, polling represented a direct challenge to shoe-leather journalism, to shoe-leather reporting, which we discussed a moment ago. This is journalistic direct observation out of the office, talking to people, doing what Haynes Johnson did, for example, for many election cycles, crisscrossing the country, talking to people about their inclinations, their preferences in terms of politics and how this was likely to influence the outcome of the election. Getting out of the office, talking to people was a fundamental element of shoe leather journalism, which still exists, still exists, and still celebrated in media circles. 
So why has pole bashing abated among journalists? It's not as if journalists have become suddenly more polite and courteous. That's not an explanation. What possible explanations might you offer? What do you think? What might account for the abatement, if you will, the decline of pole bashing, Chapman? Is it because, especially with like Trump's rise and him bashing the polls as fake, or they're underestimating his support and not to look at the polls, is it because if journalists were to also bash the polls, they would kind of be aligning themselves with someone who is also attacking the press itself? That's an excellent point. One that I hadn't thought of. Does that mean then it's, if, if that's the case, it, it might be of short duration? Because Trump is not going to be on the political scene forever. I mean, he's been there for quite a while, but it's not going to be forever. What do you think? Is this a short-term um, phenomenon? Shortish? It's term? definitely short-term in terms of Trump himself, but I think the practice of attacking the press and also the polls is going to be around uh, in the Republican scene for at least a little bit longer than Trump with people like Ron DeSantis and other Republican politicians kind of picking up that mantle. So I think that it's not necessarily tied to Trump itself, although he's definitely the one who's like pioneered it on the Republican side. Very interesting point. Yeah. Because like the public already has such a distrust for the polls that the media feels like they don't really need to add more to it by bashing on it as well in the media. So why pile on, in other words? Why should the media pile on when when the distrust, as you put it, of the polls is pretty intense? Yeah, that's good. Gabrielle. Um, I'm um, I'm wondering if poll bashing has abated because... um, I don't know, I think, I'm thinking about the shift from news to, like, more entertainment-based in the past uh, 10 to 20 years, and maybe it's similar to sports stats in which they're good for ratings, not more of, like, there's something easily digestible, the public can easily digest and take interest in, Um, and also it's a lot easier to look at a poll than it is to, like, listen to, like, a 10-minute report on the complex inner workings of American minds when it comes to political decisions. That's a good point. Right. Related to maybe the entertainment factor of the news media, but... Do you think this is like 10, 20 years in the making, or is it probably longer than that? Um, This phenomenon you described. I'm thinking that... um, I th- I'm thinking that that poll bashing has slowed down probably in the past 20 years, and that's only because I'm, like, 22 and I haven't really heard of it <laughs> um, in the really in the news media since I've been a, a watcher of the news media. I think also when it came to 2016, I feel like the American public was a lot more like, um, okay, now Trump's president, then, oh, what did the polls do wrong? I don't know. I felt like... If there were to be, if there was, there might have, there probably was poll bashing in 2016. I just was in high school, so maybe I didn't notice it. But I feel like the news media didn't really, like, have reports on, like, what polling went wrong. Or it's, it's, it, it's, it was not as vehement or as intense or hostile among the news media after 2004. It's kind of puzzling as to why that seems to be a demarcation line. And maybe you're right. Maybe you're right that the public's respect for polling has dropped off to a point where the media just feel that they don't have to, 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 to weigh in. It could be. Could it also be because you said that it didn't change until 2004, but someone like Jimmy Breslin that you mentioned prior also made an incorrect like assumption about the election. So I think that it could just be like people are wrong. Like, I don't know. Like, it's something of the sort where like the journalists also go, some journalists did get it wrong, prominent journalists. And so then there's obviously something going on that people are not like picking up on in terms of like human behavior um, from journalists who are doing the, like the shoe leather, like method shoe or, yeah, the shoe leather reporting method or um, people that are doing the polls. That's great. I like that. I like that explanation. The journalists essentially were chastened by their own mispredictions, such as Jimmy Breslin in, in 2004, and therefore kind of uh, tamped down the poll bashing. Interesting. Isaac. 
I also wonder if it could be just the development of like technology and data in itself. I feel like that our perception of data and that type of stuff, specifically in terms of like media news, has become a lot more potentially like welcoming than it has been in previous decades. Just from other areas using it so much more. I think um, Gabriella's point about um, about sports is an, an excellent understanding of that. Just seeing that so many people are like very much focused on stats, and even Nate Silver, the like the person who runs 538 is a sports statistician at heart. And I think that that might be something that like um, has made the entire environment a little bit more welcoming to the data pull dash or the data of pulling. Why would that be, though? Why would people suddenly become, if not enamored, then more respectful of the data of polling? I mean, what, what would... Uh, because, because statistics do put off a lot of people and a lot of journalists. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's definitely fair. I think, however, in the past, I, I would say even 10 years, data and technology has just become so um, entrenched in everyone's lives that I think that it makes it so people might be a little bit less so um, worried about it than before. Because, I mean, I can remember back 10 years ago, the idea of, like, someone having a phone when I was, like, 11 is like absolutely crazy but now that's that's something that's normal because we need to make sure that people are able to contact like their children and stuff like that so i think that the greater societal shift towards technology and big data and all that stuff might be one of the reasons why it's more it's more okay that's a good point that's a good point yeah this is a related point to that i think that um like you mentioned nate silver I think that the rise of the polling aggregators has played some role in this, partially because it's taken some of the um, it's taken some of the celebrity and some of the attention away from pollsters themselves, which I think was something that um, I think journalists felt that they were competing with. Whereas now you see very much a fusion between um, journalism and the polls. You often see um, folks like Nate Silver being brought on to election night coverage, and I think that. The, um, the especially with the rise of um, online journalism, it has made it a lot easier for um, journalists to to make polling part of their coverage as opposed to having to compete with polling. And I think it's also made if it if it hasn't made polling more accurate, it's created a more a, there's been there's more of a respect, if not from the public, from journalists that it's a scientific process as opposed to something that's guesswork. So it's a little more sophisticated than poll bashing was and a little more thoughtful than the reflexive, the polls are wrong, let's insult them some more. Daniel, you've been very patient. Yeah, I think um, thinking like specifically to 2016, um, where I think the people were extremely surprised with the result. So the people, and I guess by extension the media, um, were more... I guess, inclined to be forgiving of the polls, even though they were completely wrong as well. So it's just sort of that forgiveness factor of if the people are surprised and the polls also have the right to be surprised. Interesting point. I'm, I wonder how many pollsters would embrace that notion that people were forgiving because I think they remember 2016 and then 2020, which was another embarrassment in some respects, a different kind of embarrassment. But the polls collectively were off in a way that was unmatched since the Reagan-Carter election. I was going to get at, I was kind of going to answer a question or ask, answer the question with a question. Whereas, is it poll bashing has stopped or do people just not really care about polling anymore as a masses? It kind of goes towards Isaac's point of the advancement of technology. I think we've even discussed in the class before that people have started closing their doors more, answering calls less, especially with the um, invention of caller ID and being able to see who's calling your phone. Most people don't want to be bothered anymore. And I think it has a lot to do with our cultures of societies being individualistic. So I don't think it's that poll bashing has really like, like stopped per se. I just don't think people rely on polling again, going towards what um, we've been discussing. People don't think that polling captures the complexity of like the human mind and what people are really thinking or what if people change their minds again going back to the snapshot in time so it's really it's really complicated yeah i think so 
These are great responses, folks. I wish I had thought about half of them or more. Cassie? Yeah, kind of going off of Priscilla's point about if people care or not, I was thinking about this question and then trying to think of other trends that could kind of go along parallel to the decline in poll bashing. And I thought with the decline in poll bashing since 2004, we've also seen the increase of polarization in our politics. So I'm kind of thinking that maybe this could be part of an explanation. So after a surprising election result, people are not as interested in what went wrong in this past instance, but they're focusing now, okay, we have this polarized government now, what are the next steps? How are the branches going to be interacting with each other? And it's much more focused on that partisan polarization now with presidential elections. So I think that future looking mindset focused on polarization has sort of taken over looking in the back on polling mistakes in a way. So that it doesn't seem to really matter that much anymore because the, the, the electorate's interest perhaps lies elsewhere. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting point as well. Lily, did I see your hand? Yeah, I was going to respond to Priscilla's point with another question. Sure. If people don't trust the polls and the media doesn't like to use the polls, then why do we still have polls during election season? Because if the public already doesn't think that they're accurate and the media already doesn't like that they're presumptuous, like... Why is polling still around? And I think it's because like humans want to know what's going to happen and they want that sense of certainty. And I think like Cassie's point is very accurate. That polarization is a very big effect because I don't think it's about like the individual candidates anymore necessarily. But I think it's about the parties more. And so I think that's why people like the polls now. It's because it's more about the parties and it's more broad than just predicting a specific candidate, which I think is what people got wrong and people were frustrated with because they were expecting a specific candidate to win. But now, like when you talk about candidates, it's always like the Democratic presidential candidate. It's not like you're saying Joe Biden's name in the polls. Very interesting thoughts. To that, I would add that polling is probably not going to go away in part because its pedigree is so long. Researchers have found evidence of sort of proto-polls, straw polls of the sort. As far back as 1824, in the election of 1824, newspapers in Pennsylvania and North Carolina were reporting on the sort of sentiment detection that, that some people were, okay, who, who, who's for John Quincy Adams and who's for Andrew Jackson? And so going back that far to 1824 is, is really a long, long, long period. So it's, it's hard to see polling be completely uprooted. It might be. It might be. I kind of doubt it. And my, my argument is no, that it will not be completely uprooted. And we'll, we'll still have election polls every election cycle, midterms or presidential elections, or even off-year elections, there's going to be polling. A couple more points, Angela and then Mason. Yeah, sort of to Priscilla's point um, about people really closing their doors, not answering polls, I think that that is related to the trend of declining institutional trust across American society. And I think part of why poll bashing has abated is because journalists are more concerned about that. And um, similar to this idea that poll bashing has become political, I think journalists now looking at this at poll bashing don't necessarily see um, just this sort of uh, maybe friendly, maybe harsh competition between polls and journalists, but they see a broader, more concerning trend about institutional trust. And so they're less likely to engage in it because they feel that it's actually a societal problem they should be investigating and not something that they should be participating in. Very good. Thoughtful points. I think... um Responding more to Lily's point on um, who are the polls for, I, I would completely agree that I don't think that they're really for the people anymore. I think that, and we, we've had this discussion before in class, that I think that it's much more for the candidates themselves because of the fact that polling provides such a good indicator for potential donors to like get money to candidates that they think are going to be successful in the campaigns. And I think that that's definitely something that, as we have seen a decline in the actual um, trust and interest of polls maybe from people in general, um, I, I think that 
that might be the alternative of where it innovates to. It's not for the people anymore. It's for institutions and other uh, things such as that. Right. And election polling does tend to be focused on candidates. And the public polls are out there perhaps in, in greater numbers than ever before. We'll see. I mean, people like Nate Silver, who was mentioned, do kind of keep track of how many polls are being conducted and by whom. There are internal polls, too, that candidates run themselves and don't necessarily make public as to the trends that they're picking up. So you're right, but there are these other, this other sort of subterranean aspect of, of opinion research, of polling, of election polling, that we don't often see, that we don't often pick up on, that are not often disclosed. These are great points, folks. These are great points. Let me offer my three observations. One of them, for the, explaining the decline of, of poll bashing, is that some of the more prominent poll bashers have passed away and are no longer on the scene. Secondly, major news organizations and even local, some local news organizations have become polling entities themselves. This is not necessarily a new trend. We've seen the New York Times and CBS News get together in an association that began in 1975. But they were the pioneers. Nowadays, we see many national and even local polling organizations or news organizations conduct polls or commission polls. CNN, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal are among the news organizations, prominent news organizations, that have become pollsters themselves. So it makes it obviously a little awkward to be bashing your own work in a way. This may be an explanation too. And Angelo sort of hinted at this. In fact, he kind of nailed it, uh, saying that the rise of the data journalist is another explanation for the decline, the abatement, if you will, of poll bashing among prominent journalists, the rise of the data journalists. Now, not all journalists in this country are steeped in and are comfortable with big data, but a growing number are. And Nate Silver, who launched the polling analysis site 538.com in 2008 became almost an instant celebrity when he predicted or forecast the outcome of 49 of the 50 state elections in that year's presidential election between Barack Obama and John McCain. He got it right 49 out of 50 in his poll-based modeling, his poll-based data analysis. And even top that, in 2012, in the race between Obama and Mitt Romney, the Republican, a race that some organizations, such as the Gallup organization, thought was going to go Romney's way, narrowly. Silver predicted the outcome in all 50 states and an Obama victory, really becoming something of a celebrity. Now, he's not infallible. He's not infallible. In 2016, he gave Donald Trump less than a 30% chance of victory. And he, he forecast that Hillary Clinton would carry key states such as Wisconsin, Florida, Michigan, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania, all of which Trump won in his narrow election victory. He won an electoral college victory of some substance but, and lost the popular vote. But the forecast that 538.com offered in, 19, in 2016 about those states was incorrect. And he also figured that Trump's chances of winning a split election, a split election in which he loses the popular vote but wins the electoral vote, 538.com figured that likelihood was 10.5%. Very small. Not impossible pretty small. And that's what happened. A split decision in 2016. And in 2020, 538.com gives Trump a 10% chance of victory, saying Biden is likely to win by 8 percentage points in a popular vote. 
But he says, and wrote two days before the election, I'm here to tell you that Trump can still win, even though there's a 10% chance that 538's model is giving Trump in that election. All hedging aside, and I would argue this is a bit of a hedge, Silver and other data journalists have shown a comfort with, and indeed a sophistication and understanding of polling data. And this projects a cogent sophistication that wasn't matched by poll bashers of earlier days, of earlier times. So to recap, why has vehement poll bashing abated? The passing of prominent poll bashers, journalists who are bashing polls. Major news organizations have really become and have confirmed their presence on the polling scene, that they are polling as well as news organizations. And then the rise, the rise of the data journalists. So what, one might ask, have poll bashing journalists accomplished in their criticism, in their denunciations? What effect, effects, did this cross-generational poll bashing have overall? What would you suspect are some of the results, upshots, consequences of cross-generational poll bashing? Cassie. Well, I think um, one of the columnists that was criticizing polling strategy of only using telephones, uh, landlines, and not including cell phones, that probably prompted the industry to make that move towards cell phones that we see today. And so... Hopefully, in theory, that is making the pollsters available to reach a more wide audience. So I think that was a really good thing that happened for the industry. And then also, I was thinking that some of the criticisms that the poll bashers were offering were saying how polling does not capture a realistic representation because it's just a number and it doesn't really gauge how the public is actually feeling. So maybe pushing journalists and pollsters to take that more of a shoe leather approach has happened and made polling hopefully a bit more accurate. So I feel like if that movement happened, then that was a good thing. So I think those two criticisms were pretty prominent from what I gathered from the readings and this lecture. It's very good. Taking the first one for a moment, Cassie, uh, so it was something of a reminder that there are a large number of people, a growing number of people, who are using cell phones primarily, that Jimmy Breslin was calling attention to, perhaps in an insulting and an aggressive way, but nonetheless was, was underscoring a trend that became even more of a powerful and decisive trend because, as I say, most people... You know, I've given up landlines. Many people have, and, and our cell phone only, cell phone only households. That's great, Lily. I agree with Cassie's like saying like how poll bashing has kind of forced pollsters to change their methodologies. And from chapter two of the book that we read this week, like going back to like the 1936 election and like the poll bashing that happened there. Um, it says, like, the digest failure, like, the literary digest, it, like, introduced, like, a sense of, like, nagging doubt about the polls that's, it continued so, like, for so long and, like, in election polling in general. And it also kind of presented, like, a comp- competitiveness in the polling industry and how, like, poll bashing, like, you can bash, like, one poll and then, like, praise another poll for getting it more accurate. So it kind of made a sense of, like, a competitive nature in this industry. Those are good points. Those are good points. Do you think that that's a direct ramification or consequence of, of poll bashing, or is it a sort of just a sidelight of, uh, of this phenomenon? I feel like it's a little bit of both. I think it depends on the election year and, like, what the polls have said, because if all of the polls got it wrong, obviously there's not really going to be a competition because everybody got it wrong. But in some places, like, some years, like, we call, like, you know, different polling organizations have different numbers. So, like, those years might be more prominent of, like, look who got it right and then look who got it wrong. Right. You know what comes to mind when you were saying that is the 2020 election. And a lot of pollsters got it wrong, thinking that Biden had a 10, 12 percentage point lead in the popular vote. 
But as we've seen, there were some pollsters, Emerson College polling for one, it was pretty close. Their final poll had Biden ahead by five percentage points, and he won by 4.5. So yeah, you're right. There are some, clearly, some differences in, in, in the polling results. Chen, what do you well, I think it's made, like, just everyday Americans not care about the polls. And, like, Trump has obviously expedited that process for Republicans. But I think Republicans, Democrats, and Independents, they, like, they're told about the polls and they go, oh, I don't believe the polls. And I think it's because that everyday Americans are kind of engaged in their own form of shoe leather journalism. Because they're the ones talking to, like, friends and neighbors and, like, other people out and about during their normal lives that they just talk to people about these things and they develop a better sense than like maybe a poll could offer. So I think that in that respect, it's made people more cautious of the polls or even outright just dismissive of them because they're feeling something different. Do you think that that may be too qualitative and not sort of Scientific enough? Yeah, especially now. Talking to your neighbors, doing your own shoe leather reporting. Especially with Republicans tending to live with more Republicans and Democrats living with Democrats, it definitely produces more of a bias. But I agree, it is too qualitative, but I think it still is something that's more, I don't know, maybe more real, I guess, in a sense. That's interesting. Yeah, um, going directly onto Chandler's point, I think that... um, Poll bashing has definitely brought a lot of disillusion to the institution of, uh, to these major institutions that we all used to hold dear. And I think that one of the reasons why is because of the formulation of polling at its beginning as a very scientific way of doing things. Or at Um, least was characterized as that. Yes, exactly. More quasi-scientific than... Well, in that exact point, though, Dr. Gallup was always called himself Dr. Gallup, and it was always seen as this very sophisticated measure of always trying to do things in a very pristine and scientific way. But even as you say in your book, um, all that stuff sometimes gets taken to the side when, like, you're actually down in the field and there's a whole bunch of issues with that. And I think that with the resulting um, disillusion and when they were wrong and all the pull bashing that brought alongside of it, I think that tacitly also, um, like, hurt the characteristic of hard science as well um, in that sense. And I think that... um, and the idea that these are for civic duty and, um, and related to these hard uh, characteristics that then made it so people are then a lot less like a lot less interested or welcome to the thoughts of these hard data sciences because we see that this thing that was characterized as a hard data science was wrong like a lot of the time or often enough to 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 raise people's skepticism. Polls are not always wrong, but they have been wrong often enough, as we've seen, for people to be kind of wary about them, kind of skeptical, and not certain about whether they should put much trust in, in them. Could that also, like, I think we've talked about it before, but could that also be the lesson in and of itself, like failure? Um, maybe I'm like a proponent, proponent of failure, but I think that in election polling in particular, when there's like a fail, like they get it wrong or something like that, it makes everyone question like what happened. And I remember like back in 2016, and it may be because like people live with one another, like in terms of like political ideology, but that made me question like what in the world happened to like the election polling results or just in general, like because when talking to other people, you, I don't think anyone around me would have guessed that Donald Trump would have won that election. And so then I think there's something to it, to failing. And even with the 1948 election or even 1952, I think that also made other people question in those elections, like what happened in that polling situation. Um, And in 1948, we talked about this before, and even it's in some of the readings that people, like some of the pollsters stopped polling before, like after they didn't poll after Labor Day and things of that nature. And so that was like, one of the examples of, like, this is where we went wrong in polling. And also, like, it also tells you the shift in attitude among society, like, where the shifts happen. Does it happen right before the elections, the day before? Or is there some kind of announcement that happens that changes people's minds, like in the case of Eisenhower? So I just think that there's um, value in failure. Interesting. In election polling failure in particular. That sounds like a great research project to take on. The value of failure in election polling. Interesting. Final thought, folks. Anyone like to offer a final thought? Go ahead, Angela. 
Yeah, I think uh, the idea that this criticism that the election polls just, as Cassie said, are just a number, that they just focus sort of on the horse race, has led to some changes, especially in media usage of polls, um, because now any exit poll you always see contextualized with not just where are the candidates standing, but what are the issues that people saying are the most important to them. And so I think that poll bashing has had that accomplishment of leading journalists to put some context and not just focus on um, the immediate context of where's the horse race at. I'm sorry, Angela. What would you say about this point, though, that major news organizations have themselves become polling organizations? I think that that's definitely um, a, a fact, and I think it's probably led to some... It's led to changes because it's led to um, journalists looking at what kind of polls are going to be the most useful to their coverage, and that means more polling that can sort of serve as a substitute for shoe leather journalism. Well said. On that note, folks, we are going to wrap up for today. I want to thank you very much for your observations, comments, suggestions, and insights. They were great. That list I showed a moment ago could be expanded, what, four times as long? In any event, I appreciate your attention and your contributions. We stand adjourned. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. If you're interested in hearing more history, check out Season 2 of the Presidential Recordings podcast. The second season focuses on taped conversations between President Richard Nixon on topics ranging from the Watergate scandal to his nominees for the Supreme Court. The Presidential Recordings Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.